So what I'm presenting today is uh, from a chapter of my forthcoming book, uh, as she mentioned, uh, Emergency Chronicles. And uh, yes, today is Indira Gandhi's uh, assassination day. Today is also Halloween, so I don't know what the <laughs> symbolism of the two is. Uh, um, <coughs> so on 26, so this is the book. On 26 June 1975, Indira Gandhi declared emergency in India and for the next 21 harrowing months, uh, hundreds and thousands of uh, people were arrested. Uh, poor, the poor were sterilized, uh, their slums were demolished, uh, and there was a general atmosphere of intimidation um, in the country. In spite of this kind of searing moment in India's post-colonial uh, history, the emergency has received very little historical treatment. Um, th there's some academic works uh, on the emergency, uh, notably Emma Tarlow's uh, book, uh, Unsettling Memories, which is really about the afterlife of the emergency and the memory of emergency, uh, but no real history of the emergency itself. And there is a kind of a standard narrative about the emergency. Because it lasted only 21 months, in Indian uh, political and scholarly discourse, uh, it's seen as a momentary episode uh, in India's post-colonial democracy. And the argument is that it suggests uh, a certain strength of Indian democracy, that it was only a kind of flash in the pan. Uh, Along with this, of course, there's the idea that it was all Indira Gandhi, uh, that it was Indira Gandhi's uh, desire to cling to power, uh, that the emergency was brought on, and it was uh, due to his, uh, due to her conflict with uh, JP, Jayaprakash Narayan, uh, who had led the movement for total revolution, or what he called total revolution, in 1974-75, uh, and that the final triggering act in this drama was the Allahabad court judgment which unseated her uh, from her seat in the parliament, and that this is why the emergency happened. These uh, personality-driven narratives pay very little attention to the kind of a longer history of India's uh, post-colonial democracy. Uh, in the book that I argue that the political crisis that broke out in 1974-75 had to do with what Ranajit Guha otherwise calls uh, dominance without hegemony, uh, and that the crisis was a kind of a culminating moment uh, in that crisis brought on by dominance without hegemony. Nor was this crisis peculiar to India. Um, the JP movement that emerges in 73-74 occurs against the background of a kind of a global unrest from below against uh, regimes that had come into power after Second World War across the world. Uh, one has to only think of May 68 in Paris, uh, Cultural Revolution in China, uh, the Prague Spring, uh, various insurrectionary movements in Latin America, uh, anti-Vietnam War movement, counterculture, in all of these, uh, you find uh, a certain dissatisfaction with uh, whatever form of the state that existed across the world 
and the ability of those institutions to can I put this and the ability of these institutions to represent the people uh, and across the world mass actions pose afresh the question that in fact has dogged uh, democratic theory since Rousseau and which is how are people to be represented can certain institutions like uh, elected representatives, uh, the parliament, uh, the rule of law, uh, adequate to represent the real voice of the people. These challenges to ruling regimes, uh, as I said, uh, started simmering in the uh, late 1960s and in India in the 1970s it produced uh, a crisis too. Uh, the Indira Gandhi regime. Nor was this crisis, of course, uh, only confined to India. Uh, Pakistan had its own moment with Roti Kapra or Makan with Bhutto. Uh, Srimao uh, Bandarnaike in Sri Lanka faced a similar kind of a crisis with JVP rebellion in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, and Mujibur Rahman, when he comes to power in 1975, also confronts a similar uh, popular revolt from below. Today I turn to this uh, moment uh, in this kind of a global crisis in uh, democracy uh, and to ask how the people who were thrown behind the bars uh, thought about the idea of freedom and democracy. I ask how incarceration forced a rethinking of freedom not just in terms of the adequacy of uh, official institutions of democracy, um, not only as a matter of legal status of the citizen, uh, but freedom as a self-constituting act. Uh, how did the experience of being incarcerated, uh, being in the prison, force an introspection uh, about freedom, not only as liberation from uh, oppression or external constraints, uh, but as a capacity to remake oneself and remake society. A more profound sense of democracy uh, than just party politics. Now among those arrested, of course, uh, none was more prominent than JP, uh, who was 73 year old uh, in 1975. He was born in, in 1902 in Bihar uh, in a middle class, uh, upper caste educated family. And he tasted politics during uh, Gandhi's 1920-22 non-cooperation movement. After Gandhi withdrew the movement, uh, JP uh, sailed to the United States for higher education. Uh, and this was unusual among Indians at that time because they usually came to the UK. Uh, in JP's case, he had heard that in America you could study and also work. Uh, and that way you could, you know, pay your fee. So he uh, went to Berkeley first uh, and found Berkeley uh, too expensive uh, and then moved to uh, Ohio State University. In all, he spent about seven years in the United States, uh, ultimately earning both a BA and an MA degree uh, from Ohio State University. 
But during the seven years that he was there, you know, he had a very varied experience. He waited tables, he worked in cinema halls and an usher, uh, experienced racial discrimination in Chicago. But most importantly, he also fell in with a, a Polish-Jewish Marxist uh, in Chicago who introduced him to Marxism. Uh, and mm -hmm. JP became a Marxist. He returned in 1929 uh, convinced as a Marxist and committed to the idea of social revolution, uh, but he didn't join the communists uh, because the communists by this time had denounced Gandhi as a bourgeois uh, reactionary, uh, more dangerous than even the British Raj because he was able to uh, dupe Indians into thinking that you know he could bring real liberation. Uh, so he joined uh, Gandhi. Meanwhile, uh, while he was away, his wife Prabhavati uh, had been at Gandhi's ashram. And under Gandhi's influence, she had taken a vow of brahmacharya, celibacy. And so when uh, JP returned, she announced that she had taken this celibacy and, you know, JP doesn't write very much about it except to say that he accepted her decision, but uh, we don't know what impact this had in his sort of subsequent uh, political life. In any case, he joined uh, the Gandhian movement and achieved a certain amount of fame in 1942 when he made a dramatic escape from uh, a central jail in uh, Hazaribagh in Bihar, uh, and he became a kind of an icon for young nationalists during the 1942 movement. He was part of the Congress Socialist Party uh, and the Socialists uh, broke from the Congress in 1947 because they fought the uh, independence decision uh, and the transfer of power had been uh, a compromise, uh, a, a constitutional compromise and a betrayal. And this, of course, led to the socialists, uh, you know, forming a socialist party in 1948, and uh, JP became part of the socialist party. Uh, but by 1953, uh, he retired from formal politics and joined Vinoba Bhave in his uh, Bhudan uh, program, you know, Land to the Tiller, uh, because he thought that. Uh, as he put it, this was not Rajniti, uh, politics of the state, but Lokniti, uh, politics of the people. Um, he, his socialism had this kind of a uh, Gandhian streak in, in it, uh, which turned him towards uh, local self-government. And he thought uh, socialism has to be uh, enacted, practiced uh, at the local level. Uh, not through a centralized state. Uh, so by 1953, 54, he had broken uh, with the idea of a proletarian revolution and thought that mere change in economic relations wouldn't bring socialism and that socialism had to be uh, brought through a change in human attitudes and at the local level. So a kind of a commitment to social revolution uh, had turned in uh, JP uh, into a kind of a Rousseau-like idealization of popular will uh, at the local level. With this kind of a Rousseauist ideal, uh, 
he started writing uh, in the 60s and early 70s uh, lamenting uh, the corruption of parliamentary democracy uh, and particularly the corruption of uh, the Congress government under Indira Gandhi. So when the youth and student unrest broke out in 1973, first in Gujarat and then later in Bihar, uh, he supported it. Uh, just as he supported the uh, May 68 uh, movement in, in France, uh, writing about it, saying that what he liked about the May 68 revolution was that it was uh, a revolution at the local level, that you know the workers were setting up factory councils and students were also uh, establishing uh, local level organizations, uh, which answered his... Uh, call for uh, socialism at, at the local level. When the movement broke out in, uh, in Bihar and students approached him for leadership, uh, he immediately accepted it. Uh, they turned to JP because he had this kind of uh, saintly image that someone who didn't seek uh, political office uh, had retired from uh, formal politics and therefore had a certain kind of a stature. Uh, and JP eagerly took his role and then there was this um, really iconic meeting that he uh, addressed in 1974 uh, in, in Patna where hundreds and thousands of uh, students and youth gathered and he addressed that meeting with uh, verses from the poetry of Hindi poet uh, Ramdari Singh Dinkar. Uh, Dinkar had written this poetry actually in 1950 to celebrate uh, the introduction of the Indian constitution. Uh, and the verses were, clear the way, hear the rumbling of the chariot of time, leave the throne for the people are coming. Those were the words. Uh, and these were really electrifying words that uh, JP uttered. And if you saw his kind of persona, he looked like a, you know, a frail, uh, even JP's earlier, I mean, I've seen now, uh, yes. JP's kind of a young picture, uh, but I always remember him and the pictures I've seen of all these kind of old, sort of frail, saintly man. But when he got on stage, he was uh, electrifying with these verses from uh, Dinkar. What he meant uh, through his speech was, of course, that th this was a struggle uh, for real change, or what he called total revolution. Uh, not only uh, a, tr a change in rulers, but a real social transformation, uh, a total revolution by which he meant a decentralized government at the uh, village and you know, uh, community level. His leadership uh, of the movement uh, made him and uh, turned him into uh, Indira's uh, principal four uh, in 1974-75. But someone she found difficult to demonize because of the certain image that he enjoyed as uh, a saintly leader uninterested in the offices of power. So when she declared the emergency, he was of course one of the first to be arrested. He was arrested along with many other prominent uh, opposition leaders just before the dawn of uh, June 26th 
uh, and taken to uh, Gurgaon just outside Delhi where he was uh, placed in a tourist lodge. Then he was transferred to All India Institute of Medical Sciences because he was ailing. Uh, and then immediately afterwards uh, flown to Chandigarh where he was housed in uh, Postgraduate Institute for Medical Research and, uh, and Training or PGI. Uh, where he spent the next four months for both kind of safe custody but also for uh, medical treatment. There were various senior officers uh, of the government who were uh, entrusted uh, to look after him and you know keep him in detention. Um, one of them was this man called M.G. Uh, Devasayam uh, who was the district magistrate of uh, Chandigarh. And he has written about his experiences of, uh, of that time with, with JP. And he writes there that, you know, just before JP arrived, uh, Bansilal, who was the chief minister of Haryana and, you know, strong man, uh, he, he telephoned him and said, uh, the bastard thinks he's a hero. Let him stew. Uh, don't let him meet anyone or phone anyone. Um, Brutish vulgarity was, uh, you know, Bansilal's element, uh, and he thrived on it. And more than any other politician in India at this time, he used this vulgarity to bludgeon his political uh, opponents uh, with force uh, and into obedience. Devasayam, although he had been instructed by uh, Bansilal to uh, treat him rather stringently, uh, actually treated uh, JP with uh, a great deal of uh, decency and, and humanly. Uh, and according to him, JP arrived uh, in Chandigarh completely bewildered by Indira Gandhi's actions. Uh, first he was, you know, moved from one place to the other and he couldn't understand, you know, why she had jailed him. And so he wrote, I am 73. I do not know how long I'm going to live. I wonder what my life is going to be in captivity. Everything seems to be finished. So he was in this kind of a despondent mode. Uh, he had never expected that Indra would go sort of that far and arrest him. And this was a very different person who had found meaning in political life or leading students and youth in 1974. 75, particularly after uh, the death of his wife, uh, Prabhavati. And that's part of, you know, kind of a JP story. Prabhavati uh, was, of course, his comrade uh, in life, but uh, she was also very close to Kamla Nehru, uh, Indira's mother. And in fact, during this 1974-75 confrontation with Indira Gandhi, uh, JP actually sent her uh, the letters that Kamla Nehru had written to uh, Prabhavati uh, over the years, uh, even while they were, you know, battling uh, politically. So as J.P. writes in his prison diary, uh, he says, After Prabha's departure, I had lost interest in life. Had I not developed a special attitude for public work, I would have retired to the Himalayas. I wept within, but outwardly, I followed the routine of life. 
but a year later. So this is what he wrote in 1974, inspired by students uh, of Bihar. He wrote out Dinkar's you know, insurgent verses to vast crowds. But now, again in captivity, he despaired. He wrote, what is this lady going, doing to the country? She was like my child. I knew her father and grandfather. Panditji, Nehru, would have given his life to preserve democratic institutions. Uh, but she is destroying it. He wrote, all he had tried to do uh, was, quote, to widen the horizons of our democracy. The idea was to involve people directly in democratic processes and elected and mechanisms uh, and create mechanisms for a closer and more accountable relationship between the citizens and their elected representatives. This was, quote, the essence of what I wanted to distill out of all the clang and clamor of the Bihar movement. But it had ended with the death of democracy. And so he asked, where have my calculations go wrong? He had assumed that Indira would use all the normal and abnormal laws to defeat the movement. But he had never anticipated that she would impose a totalitarian system. Well, even as he blamed Indira for uh, destroying democracy, he blamed himself for not anticipating that his movement would provoke her wrath. At the same time, he remained unbowed. So on the same day that he wrote gloomily about his world you know, being in shambles, he inscribed a blistering letter to Indira. In the letter, a formal dear Prime Minister replaced the affectionate dear Indu of his other, uh, previous letters. He wrote, quote, I'm appalled by press reports of your speeches and interviews. The very fact that you have to say something every day to justify your action implies a guilty conscience. But he warned that he, she was sorely mistaken in thinking that muzzling the press and suppressing dissent would prevent the public from seeing through her distortions and untruths. Quote, Nine years, madam, is not a short period of time for the people who are gifted with the sixth sense to have found you out. End of quote. The political conflict had clearly broken their long personal association that went back to the pre-independence days and in included Indira's affectionate uh, relationship with uh, J.P.'s wife, Prabhavati. And in fact, if you read the earlier letters uh, between J.P. and Indra, they are actually quite affectionate. They were like a family friend, almost like he treated her as sort of his niece. So when this break comes, you know, there is almost kind of something Shakespearean in the rift that opens between uh, these two old family friends. So in a defiant letter he wrote, quote, as I am the villain of the piece, let me put the record straight. And for the next several pages, JP justified his movement as a peaceful democratic campaign. There was no subversion. If there was any attempt to paralyze the state government with Satyagraha, this had an illustrious history in the freedom movement. Uh, and he acknowledged, to be sure, the colonial government was based on force, whereas the post-colonial government was an elected government uh, with the constitution. Uh, but he argued that people had a right to ask for the resignation of an elected government with demonstrations and satyagraha. 
He wrote, quote, in a democracy, the citizen has an inalienable right to civil disobedience when he finds that other channels of redress and reform have dried up. He was stung by the accusation that Indira and many others made uh, that he had incited the police and the army to revolt. Uh, and he explained in response that all he had tried to do was to ask them to uh, disobey illegal orders. But having defiantly defended his movement as democratic, he ended up returning to the personal. He wrote, quote, you know I'm an old man, my life's work is done. After Prabha's going, I have nothing and no one to live for. I have given all my life after finishing education to the country and asked for nothing in return. So I shall be content to die a prisoner under your regime. And then he offered her advice. Please do not destroy the foundations that the fathers of the nation, including your father, had laid down. Now during JP's uh, four months of captivity in Chandigarh, his health deteriorated and his mood swung between, you know, despondency and defiance. Uh, Devashayam writes that, you know, he often found JP in a very low mood. Uh, and he later agreed with many critics who said that the government had deliberately damaged his health. As JP coped uh, with his poor health, uh, he swung between guilt for provoking Indira and then blaming her squarely. On occasion, he could be as conspiratorial in his judgment as Indira. Now, Indira, as is famously known, uh, often talked about a foreign hand, by which he meant the CIA, uh, and uh, alleged that the, this foreign hand was against her, was conspiring against her. JP could be conspiratorial too, uh, and he had in mind another foreign hand, by which he meant the Soviet Union. Uh, and he, he thought that there was another foreign hand at work, that Soviet agents were scheming to turn India into uh, a satellite people's democracy like Eastern Europe. Uh, and, and he said, but he, and he wrote to Indira Gandhi, quote, a time may come when having squeezed the juice out of you, the Russians through their Trojan horses within the Congress will dump you on the garbage he uh, heap of history and install in your place their own man. At other moments, uh, JP delved deep into India's post-colonial history to explain the current crisis. Uh, he said that mere national freedom had never been the goal of the anti-colonial struggle. A social revolution was also the objective. But while India's independent rulers enacted laws to abolish uh, landlordism and untouchability, the landowners and upper castes did not relinquish power. Mere change in laws could not accomplish the task. What was needed was what he called direct action. Civil disobedience, peaceful resistance and non-cooperation, non uh, what he called, quote, Satyagraha in its widest sense, were necessary. This was again back to the, his idea of total revolution a fundamental social and human transformation accomplished by popular action. But his perspective could also turn narrowly political as he contemplated 
a united political party to challenge Indira. This had already occurred during the Bihar movement when uh, the campaign for total revolution sputtered uh, various political parties, uh, most prominently uh, the Hindu nationalist Jansang uh, and the RSS had provided the really the cadres at, uh, uh, at the local level for the Bihar movement. <coughs> so when the total revolution movement in uh, Bihar in 1974-75 uh, began to kind of weaken, uh, he had turned his movement into a more straightforwardly kind of anti-Indira political movement, backed by political parties. Uh, once in Chandigarh, he again went back to the strategy, at, you know, at, at different moments. And Devasayam, he recounts one interesting exchange uh, when he challenged JP and said, well, you know, if you were going to include uh, Jansang and the RSS uh, in your movement, isn't this going back on your words? Because then he cited things that uh, JP had written in the 1960s. Um, calling the Jansang uh, Hindu communal party and anti-Muslim party and so on. Uh, <clears throat> JP replied that he had not changed his judgment of the Jansang uh, and he wrote, uh, quote, the RSS people are outright reactionary if not fascist. Yet he was willing to include the Jansang in a united opposition alliance because he needed their cadres uh, to anchor the new political organization. Moreover, he said the RSS and Jansang had given him a solemn pledge to abandon communal politics if they came to power. Now, whether it was naivete or political expediency uh, or both, <coughs> JP was determined to build an opposition front that would include uh, the RSS. He shuffled between these different positions despairing at times, defiant at others, uh, total revolution at some moment, uh, straightforward political opposition at another moment. Um, he vacillated between these positions. But as he, uh, <coughs> as his mood swung between rebelliousness and hopelessness, uh, his health deteriorated. And not willing to uh, risk his death in captivity, the government released him in uh, early November of 1975. Before he was flown first to Delhi and then to Bombay for uh, medical treatment, he said to Devasaya, quote, I came as your prisoner and you treated me as a human being. I will never forget this. And then he pledged, I will defeat that woman. Uh, so again, this was going back to this idea of, you know, a political op opposition to dethrone Indira Gandhi. In Bombay, while being treated, he worked on founding the uh, United Opposition Party, the Janata Party. <coughs> I want to now turn to uh, prison letters uh, exchanged between a socialist couple, Madhu Dandavate and... Uh, Pramila Dandavate. Madhu Dandavate was a member of the parliament who was elected from Maharashtra. Uh, he was also arrested on June 26th 
and lodged for 18 months uh, in Bangalore Central Jail. His wife Pramila uh, was taken into cap captivity uh, on July 7, 1975 and was held in Yerwada Central Prison near Pune. <coughs> During the 18 months that they were separated, uh, 500 miles apart, uh, the two wrote to each other every week, sometimes twice a week. Uh, these letters, almost all uh, written in Marathi, uh, are episodic, uh, conveying glimpses of everyday life in prison, and they are sprinkled with literary and musical references, uh, metaphors, and fragmentary intellectual and political uh, reflections. You can read in these exchanges uh, rich discoveries and explorations of both personal and public conditions of freedom. Uh, as Madhu wrote in one letter to Pramila, <coughs> quote, writing letters is a hugely calming activity in the loneliness of the prison. These letters are meant for other people, of course, but they're also a great way to hear oneself think, to hear oneself sort out one's own feelings and thoughts. Now, politics is understandably pro prominent in the Dandavate letters. Uh, both were seasoned political activists. Madhu first became politically active in 1942 Quit India movement and was drawn to the socialists. When the socialists parted with the Congress party and uh, formed the socialist party in 1948, he joined them. He taught physics in a college in, in Bombay uh, and in 1971, he was elected to the parliament, uh, a feat that he was to repeat uh, five times. Pramila was also uh, a political activist. After high school in Bombay, she went on to earn a degree at JJ School of Arts and became a teacher in art school. And she found her socialist calling in an organization uh, that was devoted to promoting uh, socialism at the local level, uh, but socialism with a strongly secular bent. Uh, in this organization called Rashtra Seva Dal, uh, socialism and secularism were equally uh, important. Politics brought her into the circle of socialists in, in Bombay, and she met Madhu Dandavate through that, and uh, the two married in 1953. This is just after they married. She was elected in 1968 to the Bombay Municipal Corporation and she made her mark in politics of Bombay in these kind of fiery protests led by uh, three women, Renal Gore, uh, Pramila Dandavate and Ahilya Ranganekar. Uh, they were called Pani Wali Bai, you know. Uh, and they led this campaign against food prices in 1973-74. Um, so, <coughs> like uh, Madhu Dandavati, you know, uh, Pramila was also an, int uh, an intellectual, and their intellectualism kind of shows through uh, in their letters, uh, and it forms a, a source of their strength in in captivity. Early in her uh, imprisonment, Pramila wrote to Madhu that she was devouring one book after another. She had just read an inspiring uh, Marathi book, uh, which is called The Great Prison. 
Inspired by it, she wrote in a letter to Madhu, quote, Whenever great people have been arrested, it has proved, proved to be uh, uh, a boon for the mankind. Excellent literature, poetry, as well as thought were born in prisons. Nana, which was a kind of endearing term for Madhu. Nana, I'm a simple and small human being, but you are truly made of the stuff of the great people. I'm certain you won't just read, but you will also write. This forced vacation will give birth to great eternal literature through you. I'm sure of it. As if on cue, uh, Madhu told her that after two and a half months of research, he had finished drafting two chapters of a, a projected book on Marx and Gandhi. It was not great literature, he said, but a comparative analysis of the two paths to revolution, one based on class struggle and the other on individual change in human beings. Speaking of the experience of writing, Madhu wrote, Amidst the roses on the table and the champa flowers on the trees, the pen moves in speed and smoothly. Then he quoted from Byron's Don Juan. There's music in the sighing of reeds, there's music in the gushing of a rill, there's music in all things, if man, men had ears. The earth is but an echo of the spheres. Madhu had found in Byron a way to identify, even in the confines of the prison, a universal human spirit. With this, he tried to lift Pramila's spirit when she appeared down. He wrote in a letter, quote, Your last letter had a shadow of sadness over it. You said our home and life together uh, would be completely destroyed by the time we got out of here. And you don't know if you have the strength and persistence to do it all over again. Your comment left felt exceedingly hopeless to me. We've always carried our life together on our backs. As long as our spine is in place, who can possibly touch our life together? There was nothing wrong with either of their spines. As their exchanges make clear, there was no question of resigning to the emergency regime. But incarceration also sparked reflections on the larger goals of total revolution. Pramila, in particular, would return to the idea often, exploring its meanings. Clearly, it meant for her more than the usual institutions of democracy, party politics, elections, freedom of the press, etc., but something much more fundamental. She said in one of the letters, quote, Our society needs a cultural revolution in the true sense. She wrote this while also decrying what she called uh, religious observances by many of the inmates. And she thought that these observances were counter-revolutionary because uh, she thought that you cannot be uh, a total revolutionary wanting a complete change in Indian society and still follow certain religious rituals and dogmas. For her, revolution, quote, in a true sense, implied breaking free from religious motivations and forming a culture unbounded by religious dogmas and, and rituals. One meaning of this notion of freedom can be found in her turn to Marathi poetry. Like Madhu, she frequently turned to Marathi poetry to express her thoughts. In one letter, she transcribed two uh, Marathi poems 
which had just been published and offered them to uh, Madhu as expressions of a defiant will, one, a will that can constitute itself. One was called Bheet, the wall, by a famous poet called Mangesh Padgaonkar. The poetry ran as follows. There's a wall around me, a wall around you, walls everywhere you look, walls all around, a wall of fear. Walls have ears, and each wall has a fear of other walls. Every small wall, a large wall, invisible, suffocating. The walls have become a habit, a wall of habits. The wall needs discipline. Discipline needs walls. One, two, three, four. The wall makers are smart for sure. Say, hail the walls, salute and hail the walls. She trans transcribed another poem called Mukt or Free by another Marathi poet uh, called Kusum Graj, uh, <coughs> who's called Mukt, and it ran as follows. I'm presenting you a very small part of, you know, a much larger poem that she transcribed. A cage is broken, and the free bird, with the blood from its wounded wings, draws red winding lines. On the green soil as it flies, flies towards its nest, perhaps towards its death. But the sky that looks at it with sympathy cannot take away from it its blood-soaked happiness, pride of having broken the cage. Madhu replied that he liked both the poems. Uh, and this exchange of poetry between the two uh, uh, became a mode of expressing their experience of captivity uh, and and freedom uh, at the kind of a, you know phenomenological sort of level. The poems appeared to speak to their existing uh, existential conditions of inca incarceration, and the public sphere of freedom could be read in in these poems. But the poems uh, derive their uh, power from the attention to something bodily, a kind of a sensory experience of confinement and of breaking free. The deeply intertwined experience of public and personal incarceration could be read, read in the dense, compacted language of Marathi poetry. At the personal existential level, the separation forced by their imprisonment in two different jails uh, was hard on both. Madhu acknowledged uh, a note of sorrow in his letters, but thought that this was perhaps the uh, pangs of sadness are more keenly felt than the feelings of happiness. He invoked Shelley's poem to a skylark to explain the desolate mood of his letters. Our sweetest songs are those that tell of saddest thought. And continuing in this vein, he reflected on the ordinary life, uh, ordinary criminals sentenced to life imprisonment in Bangalore jail. He wrote that their lives uh, filled him with pathos. Quote, when the life imprisonment prisoners water the rose bushes on the premises, they shed their tears into them as nourishment and see the reflection of those tears in the smiling, blooming, fragrant flowers. In the winter cold, when these fill flowers dry and wither away, 
these prisoners think about when they will step out after having completed their sentence and wonder whether the society will there will see their forever tarnished lives the same way. End of quote. Even prisoners condemned to life imprisonment were not without recourse. They could find, through Madhu, creative freedom in their tears to nurture plants and wonder about their state of incarceration. Like the prisoner who found a creative resource in uh, his tears, he was also free to imagine. Quote, we have the liberty to build the towers of imagination while staring at the sky through the day, and freedom to paint vivid dreams of tomorrow in the darkness of the night. End of quote. Besides, you could cope with the misery of imprisonment, as he did, by reading and writing. There was his beloved Hindustani uh, classical music over the radio, and the scent of flowers in the prison garden. Quote, I had the fortune to listen to Sunil Bose's Rag Bihag and Jai on national radio. I woke up intoxicated by the fragrance and, fragrance and the music and sat down to write to you. Roses, Jai Pramila, and the beautiful picture was complete. Uh, <clears throat> Pramila wrote back saying that, you know, you're being too romantic, you know. <laughs> Roses, fragrance, and Pramila, that's all good, but you know, you're in the prison. Uh, <coughs> but letters were uh, not just a way of uh, maintaining contact and exchanging information and ideas, uh, but also uh, uh, a place where their relationship was played out under conditions of enforced physical separation and censorship. And they really pined for each other. I mean, you can read them, uh, read that in the letters. And politics, books, poetry served as languages of this relationship between the two. The rapturous uh, descriptions of nature frequently enlivened their exchanges. Uh, so when the monsoon broke, uh, Pramila wrote, quote, These days we have heavy rains here. I've always loved the rain. The atmosphere looks cleaner. The earth looks like a freshly bathed young woman. The moment sky clears up, all my birds, uh, all my favorite birds flap their wings clean and start chirping away. And she could also enliven uh, her stories uh, or her, her descriptions uh, with uh, wonderful stories. And there's one story that is my kind of favorite. Uh, it's slightly long, so please bear with me, but you know, it, it's a great story. And it's a story about sparrows. So she writes, one particular sparrow was having quite an interesting time just a few days back. Most of the other sparrow couples were busy getting ready to welcome their young ones into the world, but this one was still busy with romance with her male sparrow. She was quite a special one. Then one day she saw herself in the mirror. That was it. She couldn't stop looking at her reflection and wondering who it was. She would spend so much time tapping at it with her beak, looking at herself from the top and from the side and from every way possible. 
she would spend hours trying to figure out who was behind the uh, behind on the mirror. We even put the mirror flat on the table, but she wouldn't let it go. She was so jealous of the quote other woman uh, in the mirror that whenever whenever the male sparrow flew close, she would do everything in her power to send him away. But she just refused to rest. When we put the mirror away, she found another one on the wall. She would spread her wings and try to attack it. When we covered it with cloth, she still couldn't stop hovering around it, worrying about the other sparrow. We felt a little bad for her, but couldn't help laughing at her. I told her, quote, if you spend so much time worrying about the other woman in the mirror, your man will get tired and actually get, go and get himself another woman. She would wake up every morning and come sit by the mirror. We have no idea how the male sparrow finally managed to distract her. But one day, I saw the two of them sitting close by, quite close, uh, cozily. These days, they seem, they seem to be working towards building a nest. Uh, in the sparrow story, and in, in uh, Pramila's uh, storytelling, you can read a taste for the expressions of the intimate self uh, and the delusions of self-reflections in which the self could appear as the image of the other. And yet a capacity to break from this image of the other. Imprisonment placed constraints on this intimate self but did not crush it. The confined and troubled self found agency in the storytelling of sparrows. Pramila rep reproached Madhu for being emotionally restrained. Quote, she said in one of her letters, we do a public reading of your letters because they aren't written to your wife but to your core revolutionaries. For even though your letters are beautiful, barring perhaps a sentence, sentence or two, uh, they're entirely objective. There's hardly anything subjective in them. In fact, Madhu could be, quote, subjective. In a letter, he remarked that the past 23 years of their married life had passed in a rush. Quote, as though in revenge for that, we have been forced into this solitude of the prison. The tranquility has made it possible to immerse oneself in the memories of the last 23 years. And then he turns to poetry to express his feelings. When the fire simmering down below is brought billowing to the top by memories, my skin comes alive with the thought of you and the distance hurts. Then he goes on to wonder when they would meet next. And he says, but the very next moment my heart tells me we do not want to accept meeting each other under conditions that make us feel helpless and insulted. And there was this whole kind of incident. They had applied for permission to visit each other. And after various uh, court hearings, the court actually uh, permitted Madhu to travel from Bangalore to uh, Yervada outside Pune. But the government established uh, uh, a a condition that Madhu Dandavati would have to pay for the security entourage that would go with him to Bangalore. So of course they couldn't accept this condition. So 
you know, many of their letters are written both in anticipation of their meeting and then also in disappointment when it doesn't happen. Uh, so as he's kind of reflecting on it, he, he says, uh, you know, uh, as these thoughts of meeting and not meeting linger in my mind, I am reminded yet again of something else that Kusum Graj wrote, a Marathi poet. I don't want the pathetic intimacy of cowards. I would rather endure being apart from you. The lack of uh, freedom of their personal selves only strengthened their commitment to public freedom. Consider, for example, a letter that Pramila wrote in June 1976, uh, which she ended by asking, quote, when will this night end? And then a month later, again, how many days will you survive on a limited patch of sky? When I want wander around the prison during the day watching different birds and the changing colors of the sky, I wonder about which piece of it you are stuck with. When will this never-ending night lead to dawn? In response, Madhu turned his mind to the public meaning of dawn. So on August 9th, the day, remembering the day that the Quit India movement started in 1942, uh, he talked about dawn and, of course, referred to the famous verse by Faiz Ahmad Faiz on partition and independence, Subay Azadi. This stained, tainted light, this night-bitten dawn that we were waiting for, this is not that morning. This traffic between public and private realms of freedom is a recurring motif in the Dandavate letters. For if captivity tested and intensified their commitment to freedom at the personal existential level, it also impelled them to explore and affirm the meanings of public freedom. And they loved each other because they loved freedom. Meanwhile, JP was engaged in forging the non-communist opposition parties into a new united political party from his hospital bed in Bombay. When the news of this alliance reached those lodged in the prison, uh, Pramila was outraged and she wrote to Madhu uh, questioning it. She thought it was meaningless to form a party with the sole aim of contesting elections. Quote, only if we are prepared to sacrifice the, pol uh, the politics of elections uh, until the atmosphere becomes conducive to democracy can we hope for a sincere struggle towards a party with a future. She was, again, speaking about, and there are many letters, there, there are letters written by activists across the country uh, in different prisons uh, to socialist leaders in particular, uh, questioning an alliance with the RSS and, and Johnson in a united party. Pramila uh, Dandavate, of course, reminded uh, Madhu of a speech that he had previously given uh, opposing any alliance with uh, Hindu communalism uh, and she asked why she, he had recanted his earlier views on the Jansang and the RSS. How could it be considered, that is RSS, could be considered close to Gandhi's ideals? Uh, she wrote, quote, Gandhiji's commitment to Hinduism was inclusive. His idea was of Hinduism was a secular one. And these people who rely on religious bigotry and hatred what do these two ideas have in common? 
she was firm in her conviction that a new political alliance that included such flawed ideologies could not be a force for total revolution. She had not gone to prison just for a parliamentary alternative to Indira. And it only reinforced, the prison only reinforced her commitment to a fundamental democratic transformation. And she was not alone. Many imprisoned party activists wrote letters to leaders expressing their disappointment with the plan to join quote, the rightists and communalists. Madhu Dandavate was also doubtful, but he threw in the towel. He wrote to Pramila explaining this change of heart. He said, at the urging of all the parties, JP had gone ahead and announced the decision to form a united party. If they were to withdraw at this stage, JP's credibility would suffer. He wrote, if there is no parliamentary alternative left, then we will have squandered away everything. Now, prison had served a time for reflection on the meaning of freedom, both in the public sphere and in personal relationships. But pragmatic politics took over as rumors floated that Indira was likely to dissolve the parliament and announce fresh elections. Total revolution took a backseat to forming a united opposition party. The imprisoned political leaders who had resor resorted to insurgent poetry, literature and philosophy to explore the meaning of freedom resigned to the, its restricted meaning in party politics. Determined to, quote, defeat that woman, JP took the lead in bringing together these non-communist opposition parties. Plans for total revolution were shelved. Thank you.